come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 53 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And on top of that, I would like to introduce you and welcome you to Season 2, as this is episode number 53. And then I'm getting back into what I had started in the when I first started off this show with I'm doing Italian Horror number 4. And this one, the first one's not necessarily an Italian horror movie, but there is some aspects that can kind of correlate back there with The Golden Glove. That'll be the first featured review. And then I also have another one of that is from Italy of Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom. And then I also have on here mini reviews of The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Honeymoon Phase, Black Sunday, High Tension, and Cabin Fever. What I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is that are going to be everything that will be on this episode is before I get into those mini reviews, I'm going to kick you over to a musical break. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me as we venture into season two. Es geht eine Träne auf Reisen. Sie geht auf die Reise zu mir. Der Wind bringt sie mir mit den Wolken. Und ich weiß, sie kommt nur von dir. Es geht eine Träne auf Reisen. Kommt es vor, dass man dann nicht fragt? Es war so schön, an deiner Hand zu gehen. Es war so schön, dich immer anzusehen. Und schien sogar der Regen rosarot. Sind nun für uns all diese Wunder. 
Before Christmas from 1993. This is directed by Henry Selleck. This comes from the story and characters from Tim Burton. The adaptation is Michael McDowell and then the screenplay from Carolyn Thompson. This stars Danny Elfman, Chris Sarandon, and Catherine O'Hara as all these are actually voice actors. This is an animation family fantasy musical but I think it has a lot of horror elements so that's why I'm including it here and this is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 8.0 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Jack Skellington, King of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Now, I remember getting the werewolf toy from this before I ever saw the movie. Once I finally did, I loved it. It is one of the first DVDs that my sister and I got, and we had this in steady rotation after that, and one that we knew all of the words to the songs, you know, even to this day. Jamie and I decided to watch it as we both enjoy it, and it felt like a perfect watch on November 1st. Now, just to give a little bit more background information to the thing is that we kick this off, you know, with narration about holidays and learning the true nature of them. We get a great musical number that introduces us to the characters of Halloween Town, and everyone, you know, has their part to play. And then it is all led by Jack Skellington, who is voiced normally by Chris Sarandon, but the singing voice is Elfman. After everyone is congratulated and we see that he's actually depressed, now the character of Sally, who is voiced by O'Hara, sees this and follows him to the cemetery as he laments. He decides that she feels very similar to him and he just doesn't know it yet. Now coming with Jack as he goes on a stroll is his ghost dog of Zero. Now back in town, the mayor, who is voiced by Glenn Shaddix, shows up to Jack's place and is frustrated to find that there is no answer. He is informed by some of the musicians outside that he didn't return last night. Now a search starts, and then Sally has to go home to the evil scientist that created her, voiced by William Hickey, who is quite upset at her for drugging him. This doesn't stop her from doing it again, though. Now Jack's life turns around, though, when he finds a clearing with doors that 
lead him to different holiday towns. He is drawn to the one that's a Christmas tree. When he goes through it, he marvels in amazement at everything that he sees, and this is exactly what he is looking for, you know, something different. When he returns back to his town, he calls a town meeting to try to share what he saw. They just don't seem to get the feeling that he had, and he tries scientific experiments to explain everything. After some, you know, figuring things out, he decides that he is going to take over Christmas this year. Now, Jack will need Santa Claus, and he enlists the help to kidnap him of... Locke, who is Paul Rubens, Shock, who is O'Hara, and Beryl, who is Elfman, to kidnap Sandy Claus. Now, Jack wants them to leave their boss of Oogie Boogie out of it, who is voiced by Ken Page, but we see they'll have their fingers crossed behind their back. Sally warns him to stop what he's doing after having a vision of it ending in flames, but he doesn't listen. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap, as I assume most everyone has seen this movie. Now, technically, you could say this isn't a horror film. If you consider The Addams Family or movies like that, then this definitely falls into, you know, vain. We have a lot of horror movie characters, and even though it isn't scary, it really is adjacent in my opinion. Now, what is interesting is I didn't realize this is based off of a poem that Tim Burton had written. It is pretty interesting, but I'm not surprised. His characters have always bordered on horror, even if it doesn't necessarily lean into it. Heck, I mean, there are elements in Batman and Batman Returns, and it's interesting that Jack makes an earlier appearance in Beetlejuice, even though it isn't necessarily the same character. This also would come up in one of the director's other films of James and the Giant Peach as well, where I believe he plays a pirate underneath the ocean or something like that, and it's kind of a ghost thing. But this is really a fun story. There's an interesting message here that Jack is the best at what he does, but much like you see with those in similar positions, he's bored. There is something missing in his life, and going to Christmas Town, he recaptures that joy. I like the duality that we get here in the story where Sally feels the same way, but she knows what she wants. She wants to be free and to be with Jack. This is a fitting scenario that she is similar to the Bride of Frankenstein. Jack really needs to recapture his fire and realize what he's missing. What I also like is that all the characters we get here. There are witches, the living dead, a devil, a harlequin demon, a creature from the from under the stairs, vampires, Mr. Hyde, a behemoth, a mummy, a sea creature, werewolf, and other creatures like this as well. They're distinct, especially with things like the mayor, evil scientist, and my personal favorite, Oogie Boogie. He's nothing more than the boogeyman, but there's an origin story there I'd really like to learn more about. What I really should talk about next is how difficult it would be to make this movie. After the movie ended, Jamie and I let it play a bit into the special features. All of these characters were made into puppets that are about one foot tall or so, and there's just something like 24 frames per second to make the movements work. If one thing is messed up, it could ruin all the work done, and I can see why it would take three years to make this movie. It is much easier now, I'm sure, but all the work that they put into this one is just amazing to me. Being that it went 76 minutes is quite, you know, outstanding. I can't give enough credit to the cinematography here. Now next I'm going to combine the acting with the soundtrack since this is a musical. Saranda did the normal talking voice as I said for Jack, which is something I didn't realize until recently. It is interesting though how close he and Elfman sound together since it took me a while to realize this aspect was done by two different people. They convey the emotion of Jack great. I give props to Elfman as you know being Beryl and the clown with a tearaway face. O'Hara is also great as Sally in shock. She brings a lot of emotion to the film that it really needs. Hickey has a perfect voice for the evil scientist, and I never realized until now that Shaddix was the mayor. He's great there, and I like that Rubens is, you know, Locke, and I really like Paige's Oogie Boogie. I think the voice performances, you know, slash singing were good from everyone. And I think this is just a fun film. I think it's kind of interesting to watch, you know, right after Halloween ends and then before Christmas, because, you know, that's where this movie pretty much just all takes place. 
I give a lot of credit to everything they put into this. I don't think this is a perfect movie, but I really think it's great. And personally, it's my favorite cartoon, you know, slash animated film of all time. And I came in with a 9 out of 10 on this movie. And for my second review of this week is going to be for The Honeymoon Phase. This is from 2019. The reason that I ended up reviewing this is the writer-director of Philip G. Carroll Jr. had reached out and I said that I would, you know, give it a viewing. This stars Chloe Carroll, Jim Shubin, and Tara Westwood. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.5 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being struggling young lovers, Tom and Eve must endure a 30-day scientific experiment room, board, $50,000, and a month alone together in a research facility housing, what could possibly go wrong? Now, as I was saying, this is one that I got reached out to, and I always like to review independent films, especially when I'm trying to fill out my top horror film list for the year, just because there could be some, you know, hidden gems there. And this does technically fall as a 2020 release due to it only having a festival appearance in 2019. Now, we start this off with Tom, who is portrayed by Shubin, as he's talking to the camera. This is interesting as he's upset as he lost his wife on their wedding night. The movie then shifts us over to seeing a cityscape that is mirroring itself, and they come together as they approach a large building. Our couple of Tom and Eve, with Eve being played by Chloe Carroll, meet with the director of this project, who is Francois Chow. He is trying to decide if they're right for the experiment. Eve is working to become a U.S. citizen while Tom is a struggling author. He's been hit with writer's block, but Eve is very supportive. Their goal is for him to, you know, make it as a writer and her to do, like, the covers as well as pr promotional material. This experiment will pay them the 50K, as the synopsis states, and that could really help, you know, to get their life going. They are a little bit apprehensive about what they're going to do, so they come up with a safe word of 923. Now, they end up waking in a, up in an amazing house with futuristic clothing on. Over the breast of the shirt is their name and a barcode. Now, they're also not the only couple doing this, but they're separated to just be them. Since I realize I haven't really went into what the goal is here, it is to see if the honeymoon phase of a relationship can last forever. There are a lot of divorces, and the director wants to see if that can be altered by looking at the data that he's collecting. To keep record as well as a handler that is assigned to them, portrayed by Westwood. Things don't go as planned, though. Eve gets upset with Tom as he doesn't really seem to want to write. He claims that he has writer's block, but we also see he's quite obsessed with spending all of his time with her and to have a family. He thinks that they should have a child, even though Eve doesn't think that's feasible since they really have no way of supporting this, you know, supporting another life along with theirs. They also aren't married, and not that that necessarily matters, but their lives are just in flux is what I'm trying to get at. It then gets even darker when Eve starts to suspect that there might be something off about Tom. He doesn't kiss her the way he used to. There are some memories that he doesn't seem to match up with, including that he doesn't remember what their safe word is. It doesn't help when the handler warns her about Tom. The question then becomes, is she being paranoid or is there something else going on here? Now that's where I want to leave my recap. As this is an interesting, you know, kind of movie here is that it's kind of fitting that it came out the same year as Vivarium as they have follow, you know, similar stories, but of course, you know, given it in different ways. What is interesting for this movie is the relationship that we have here. Both sides are bringing, you know, their own issues to the table. Eve really wants to be with Tom. Both are worried this experiment could hurt their relationship for good reason. Being stuck with someone for 30 days without contact with anyone else could legitimately make or break a relationship. It is interesting that I saw this during the pandemic after it had started, and I think many people like me have. For me, I moved in with Jamie during this time, so it, even though it isn't the same, there are definitely parallels here. 
I've heard many people say you truly don't know someone until you go on a trip with them or you spend large amount of time with that person. Without going too much into detail, Jamie and I tend to bicker the longer we spend time together. So I couldn't imagine being only with her for 30 straight days. That is a bit much, and anybody, no matter how much you get along, could get on each other's nerves. What is interesting, though, is for this experiment. I like the idea of Eve descending into madness from all of this as well. She thinks that Tom is acting differently. I think an issue here, though, is we don't necessarily get the baseline for us to see that completely. The handler does reveal some things definitely helps, though. For me, I feel this movie loses some momentum as it goes on. I like the characters that we are given, their issues, and getting into the experiment. I even like the steady change that comes over them with little things you know, being said that starts the madness. The problem, though, is that I lose interest after the stuff with Christmas and what follows after that. The ultimate reveal at the end really did make a lot of sense to me. In the end, it was fine, but it doesn't you know, bring me along enough for me to change my mind on it. As for the acting, I thought that Carol was good in this main role that we get her in. It took me a little bit to realize that she has an accent, which I end up loving that. After figuring that out and her dynamic of not being a citizen gets interesting for me. From my knowledge, if she gets married to Tom, she gains citizenship. Having a child would also help there. I love her practicality, though, with their situation and questioning Tom about the changes he wants to make for a family. Shubin was fine, but I feel like he does some overacting, and there were times where I just didn't care for his performance. Westwood, Chow, and the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. And the last thing to go over would be the effects. The opening credits and the look of the room for the interview with Tom worked for me. I thought the holograms looked solid in the futuristic place that they were staying. I'd even say that the blood we get looks good for the most part. Where it doesn't is the CGI there. We get some blood spray that looked like it was done with computers. I noticed that and I wasn't the biggest fan. Aside from that though, I'd say the cinematography was good. So this is a movie that I think there are some good aspects to it. I really like their situation and the worries that these characters bring. And I like the isolated feel of them being, you know, trapped in this experiment. And I thought the acting for the most part is positive. I just had some issues with the CGI and it kind of loses me, you know, in the later second half where I'm not really there for the third act to like it have the impact that it should on me. I still feel like this is an above average movie. So if you find the things that I said interesting, I would recommend giving this a viewing if these things do. So I came in here with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then I also watched Black Sunday from 1960. This goes by the original title of La Mascara del Demonio. This is directed by Mario Bava. This is written by Ennio Di Consini and Mario Sandranerdi. This comes from the tale by Nicolai Gogol. And the English dialogue was written by George Higgins. And then uncredited working on this screenplay is Mario Bava, Marcelo Cosia, and Dino De Palma. The stars Barbara Steele, John Richardson, and Andre Cecchi. This is a horror film from Italy that is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a vengeful witch and her fiendish servant return from the grave and begin a bloody campaign to possess the body of the witch's beautiful look-alike descendant with only the girl's brother and a handsome doctor standing in her way. This was a film that I'll be honest, I had never heard of until I got the top 300 horror films issue of Fangoria. When I decided to start working through it, this is of course one of the ones that I saw very early into that hunt. And then I'll be honest, I've seen this twice before where I really didn't like it all that well. I didn't hate it, but I also didn't see the love. I decided to give it a rewatch as part of my journey through the yachts here for Italian Horror Month, and especially because it come out, came out in 1960. 
Now, we started this off in the past where it's supposed to be in the time when Satan roamed the earth. He has bloodthirsty disciples that are known as witches. And then we get a little bit of narration here as Princess Asya Vajda, who is steel, is being executed for witchcraft. Along with her is her accomplice in these black arts, where it seems like in the Italian version it's her brother, but in the American version it's not. But the name he goes by is Igor Havautic, who is Arturo Damasini. Now, both have a mask of Satan nailed onto their face as punishment, and then they go to burn them, but Aja performed a curse on the man in charge, and it also has, you know, brings rains that put the fires out, forcing all the townspeople to seek shelter. Aja is buried in her family tomb, while Igor in the graveyard for murderers and criminals. We then shift 200 years into the future. There's a coach with two doctors going to Moscow for a conference. There is Professor Dr. Koma Kuruvian, who is Chekchi. And then his young assistant, who is Dr. Andre Gorobek, who is Richardson. Now, their coach is driven by Nikita, who is Mario Passanti. Now, he is scared by the stretch that they're coming up to, where there's a local legend of the witch. Now, he is convinced to take the harder route by Dr. Kruvian. And then they end up crashing. While Nikita fixes the wheel, the two of them go, by a, go into a nearby destroyed church. They hear a strange sound coming from it and discover this is wind blowing through organ pipes. As they venture farther in, they come to the tomb of Asya. Dr. Kruvian explains that she was killed for being a witch. There's a window on her casket to show Asya a cross to prevent her from returning to life. Andre leaves to help Nikita when a giant bat attacks Dr. Kruvian. He does kill it, but also breaks the cross along with the glass on the tomb. And then he ends up cutting his finger, taking the mask off of the corpse of Asya, as well as dropping blood onto her. And he also steals an artifact from her tomb. As they go to leave, though, they meet Asya's ancestor of Princess Katya, who is also portrayed by Steel, and then Andre is quite attracted to her. Now, some strange things happen, and we get to see that Asya ends up waking up, but is too weak to end up doing anything herself, so she also wakes up her disciple of Igor to help her out here, and then they start to kind of plague this castle where Prince Vajya, who is Ivo Garani, is you know the father of Katya and then there's also there is her brother of Constantine who is Enrico Oliveri. Now her whole goal here is to take over the body of Katya as well as turn all of these other people that she can into servants of Satan. Now that's where I want to leave my recap here but I do have to say this movie has some interesting concepts. The first being that the witch hunt that we have here to start the movie off in this case it's actually real. Asya is a witch with Igor helping her to which you know they're both killed for. It is interesting with the knowledge at the Salem Witch Trials, where most of them were actually innocent. Here we know that she's guilty, and she does use her powers to create a curse, along with allowing the body to return if certain things happen. Now, having seen this movie, I did end up learning that it's borrowing from the short story of Vi. I think that's how you say it. It's a, like, Russian story. I haven't gotten around to read it, though, yet. But from what the bit of research that I've done is they both have a witch, a man who is helping her with heavy eyebrows, and that they have a vampire-like creature. I think it's more of a term that they use as like a dybbuk, but I could be wrong there. But I like what Baba is doing here with taking the core of the story and modeling it into what we get. It is interesting since this is taking place in Eastern Europe as they're getting closer to Russia, as this is a Russian story. Now we also have what I wanted to go into is the family of the Vajdas. Asya is part of it, but it appears that the family, aside from Igor, has turned on her. Now, she has vowed that she will return to destroy the rest of her ancestors, but what I really like here is that there's always a daughter that looks like her. This tells me she's constantly trying to come back and will take over that body, but certain things have to happen, and this is also part of the curse as to why this keeps happening, like why this daughters keep looking like her. 
and it's probably also easier to have Steel play both roles. Now, just some other things that I really enjoy about this movie is I love that the Vajja's family crest is the griffin. I think it's an interesting creature to use for that. I think Katya is, you know, scared of this painting of Ozzy, and I think that's interesting. And then when she returns to life, the painting's a bit different. Then there's also this Prince Vaja has a bad feeling that comes from the fireplace, and it makes a lot of sense due to the passageways that we end up learning are behind it. So there is like a draft that comes through. I like that Andre is our hero. He's a doctor, so we're mixing more of the modern profession with the supernatural past. A priest is needed, though, to help them against the forces of evil. And the idea of this mask of Satan to punish them is really good. I do think this movie's a little bit slow. I do lose interest a bit in the second act before it does pull me back in. This time around, though, I've liked it more than I ever have, so, you know, it does get better for each viewing for me. What does hurt this, though, are the inconsistencies. From what we're getting, I knew that Azia was a witch. I just get to view confused as to what Igor is and the others that come back. Once I settle in there, I'm fine. For the positives, though, I do think that Steel does well in playing the good Katya and the villain Azia. The latter we don't get a lot of, but there's just a presence about her that worked. Now, she's quite attractive, and it's a shame to hear that her and Bava didn't work well together. Uh, Richardson, I think, does well as our hero. My gripe there is that he falls in love as fast as he does. I can be a bit forgiving due to the fact that he that she's a princess and it's Barbara Steele. Chechi is solid along with Garani and Domancini. I really don't think there's a bad performance here. I know some people don't necessarily love it, but and I will say some of the dubbing doesn't necessarily work, but that's just Italian cinema. Uh, then we also have you know the cinematography, which I think is good. What is interesting is that this technically isn't black and white, but monochromatic. I guess that's just the absence of color, which does make the shadows that much darker. This was an interesting bit to learn, and Baba really just knows how to shoot a movie, and I think that he does well with that. And for how early this came out, it is interesting the effects that we get. There's a transformation stuff that worked. It's pretty brutal with some of the things we get as well, while still being subdued because we don't necessarily get to see everything. The fine line makes it interesting, and I did cringe at a few spots in a good way. And it's really showing what you can do with practical effects. So that's all I really wanted to go into this with for here for this movie. I think there's some issues that I have with it, but they are, you know, getting more slightly as I, you know, watch this more and more. This is a good movie overall for me. I will warn you that the dubbing is a bit off. It's monochromatic and from 1960 Italy. If those are issues, I'd avoid it. If you want to see an interesting, though, like, witch movie, I would definitely recommend this. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And I also watched High Tension from 2003. This goes by the original title of Halt Tension. And I also believe this had a great alternate title of switchblade romance or razorblade romance something like that which i thought would be a much better title to stick with this is directed by alexander aja who co-wrote this with gregory lavassier this stars cecile de france mawen and philip nahan this is a horror film that is a co-production amongst france italy and romania this is currently sitting on a 6.8 on imdb and a 3.2 on letterboxd with the synopsis being best friends Marie and Alexa decide to spend a quiet weekend at Alexa's parents' secluded farmhouse, but on the night of their arrival, the girl's idyllic getaway turns into an endless night of horror. Now, this is a film that I remember seeing for the first time in college. I'm not sure how my roommate got turned on to it, but he did, and we watched it together as a house. I remember being blown away with how brutal it was, and it really was the reveal at the end that got me... I hadn't seen this probably in around 15 years until my next viewing, which was at the local theater here at the Gateway Film Center as part of their Horror 101 series. I also give it a third viewing due to watching all the films from the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series list. Now we start this off with Marie running through the woods. Now she's portrayed by De France. 
She's covered in blood, and she gets someone to pull over, but they have to veer away from hitting her. The person chasing them appears from the woods, and Marie wakes up. This is all a dream, and she's in the backseat of Alexa's car. Marie tells her the dream that she had, and we learn that she's had similar dreams before, and Alexa actually makes kind of a comment about it. And Now, she is portrayed by Ma Wen, that is, Alexa. The two of them talk about things that we learn are going on as they're going to Alexa's parents' house so they can study for their exams. It is also revealed that Alexa is interested in a guy while Marie seems to push them all away. We also get introduced to Latour, who is Nehan. We never really get a good look at his face until much later, but he's in a large, rusted old truck, and he's a pretty big guy himself. And we also are given a good idea of the depravity of him before he drives off. It is dark when the two girls arrive. The house is located on a road that runs through a cornfield. Alexa's mother is portrayed by Ona Pele. She has gone on to bed, but her father of Andre Finti is the actor, greets them at the door. Now, her little brother Tom, who is Marco Claudio Pascu, tried to stay up, but, you know, he ended up falling asleep. Marie is shown around, and then she ends up getting tea with Alexa before going up to their rooms. Marie puts on some music, and it is during this that the truck from earlier pulls up. He rings the bell, and it catches Marie's attention due to the dog barking. It also catches in of the father. Answering the door is just the beginning of this nightmare, as it becomes a night of violence and depravity, but not everything as it seems. Now, the first time I watched this, I dug this as a film where Marie is trying to save her friend from this monster of a human being. This falls in the French extremity movement, which I'm also a fan of. I didn't know this at the time, but there's a reveal at the end of the film that made my jaw drop. Since that viewing, I've been meaning to re-watch this, so I see if I could pick up on it, or if it was one of those things that were a cheat. With this viewing, as well as the second viewing, I can definitely say that it's not. There are quite a few hints that are dropped, especially something very early on that I didn't realize until I heard podcasters talk about it. Now, it took me until this third viewing here to finally catch it, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Aspects of that really make sense as to what is going on later in the film, but I'll say some of them do not necessarily work for some of the things that happen. Now, I don't want to go into spoilers here, but I do find it interesting that Alexa doesn't pick up on Marie being a lesbian. She keeps calling Marie out for not liking men, or at least not going after them, and Marie says that the men that Alexa goes for are womanizers, and she feels like they all are, and she doesn't have a response when she's told that she's going to end up being alone. We get to see that Marie finds Alexa attractive as she's watching her in the shower while she's outside, and I think this is an interesting aspect to play on later in the film. It is a bit problematic in the grand scheme of social commentary, but I don't think that is necessarily the reason the thing is going on here. It is more that the person is just a psychopath and lost grip with reality. As for the pacing of the film, I think it's good. We get introduced to this nightmare that gets played out you know, later in the film, just a tad bit different. We get to meet our stars, and then we're given a solid idea of each of them by just some of their interactions. It doesn't take long for the craziness to start. And then from there, I think that it is kind of has an aspect of horror films that I like where the, you, the more you see of it, the motive is an interesting one. And I definitely like how things play out and the devastation of everything that's happened. There's some things that are a bit unrealistic with one of the deaths, but it's not enough to ruin the film for me. And also, not everything that we're getting to see here is necessarily as it seems, so you also have to factor that in a little bit there. As there is something at the very beginning that I keep forgetting to kind of put into these reviews, but I don't want to include it here. I thought the acting was good. DeFrance I thought was good the first time that I saw it, but after the second viewing, I realized how good she is. And I like that we see her doing these things that she's trying to save her and her friend. She does go through some trauma, but not nearly on the same level. Mawen is really the best performance here, though. Just watching the subtle things that she does while being tied up really makes this film work for me. 
We also get to see her topless, so that's something I won't complain about. Nehan is such a monstrous figure in this movie. I've seen him in two different films now where he's a psychopath, and he just has a great look for it. Thought the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. Thought the effects, even though being from this French extreme movement, I don't think they're as brutal as I remember them being. There are moments, but if anything, I'd say that this is one of the more tamer ones. Now, there are some deaths that we get to see, you know, up until the point where it's going to get too graphic, and then it cuts away. We do get a great neck slit, and some of the brutal things later for sure. It really is all done practical, which probably explains the cutaways, so that way it doesn't, you know, ruin the effect. So I really didn't have any issues here, and I thought it was shot in an interesting way that works for the reveals as well. thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. There was this one scene where it had my anxiety going up as Latour is looking for Marie, and I thought the selection there was really helping that out. But this is one that I do want to recommend. I don't think it's nearly as brutal, so I would almost recommend this to anybody who is willing to watch a you know French film here. It is kind of interesting that I've seen this three times, and most of the film is actually in English with parts later in French with subtitles. And I could be wrong here, as the DVD I have might just be you know, not the greatest, but I also remember in the theater being that same way, so I'm not necessarily sure what the correct way for this to be, because I do know there's one point where Alexis says that her parents just moved here, so their French isn't great, but regardless, this is a foreign film. I think it has an interesting story and would recommend it on that merit alone. I find this to be a good movie, borderline on great, and come in with an 8.5 out of 10. And up next, I have Cabin Fever from 2002. Now, this is directed by Eli Roth, who came up with the story and co-wrote that with Randy Perlston. This stars Jordan Ladd, Ryder Strong, and James D. Bello. This is a drama horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being five college graduates rent a cabin in the woods and begin to fall victim to a horrifying flesh-eating virus which attracts the unwanted attention of the homicidal locals. Now, this is a film that I saw the first time in theaters and it creeped me out. I thought it had an interesting premise, and it's one that I'm pretty certain seen stuck with me, but I hadn't seen it since then. I might have caught different things on when I was living with my parents on the movie channels, but I can't confirm that. And I did end up giving it a viewing as I was working my way through a list of horror films to review, to, you know, round everything out. And then another viewing for here on the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series as I'm still working through that list for the 2000s. Now we begin this with a man who has a rabbit. He's a local hermit by the name of Henry, portrayed by Ari Verveen. Now he shows his dog, and when he isn't moving, he grabs the dog's arm and pulls on it to reveal that he has died. Now one thing I have an issue with here, for some whatever reason, blood shoots into his face. We then shift to a group of college students that are going to the cabin in the woods to party for the weekend, like the synopsis stated. The one who owns the truck is Jeff, who is Joey Kern. Now, not too long after here, we learn that he is going to go to law school. And then sitting next to him is his girlfriend of Marcy, who is Serena Vincent. And the backseat is actually in the bed and is open on top. And then sitting back there, we have Karen, who is Lad. We have Paul, who is Strong. And then Bert, who is DeBello. They stop up at a local general store before they head to the cabin to get some supplies. Paul sits down on a swinging bench next to a boy named Dennis, who is Matthew Helms. There's something off about him, and he freaks out, biting the hand of Paul. The boy's father is Tommy, who is Hal Courtney, and he scolds Paul for sitting there. He states that he should put up a sign with Jeff stating that this could lead to a lawsuit. Paul then goes to the creek around back to wash his hands, but then we see that it isn't the cleanest. The rest of the group goes inside the store, where they end up meeting the eccentric owner of Old Man Cadwell, who is Robert Harris. He makes a racist comment that causes them to hurry along. And then the group gets out to the cabin and settles in, and we get to really kind of learn more about each character. 
Now, what ends up kind of being the crux of what happens here is that Bert goes off to go hunting squirrels, and he comes to a small ravine and shoots towards something that he sees moving. Whatever he hits calls out, and he realizes that's a person. It turns out to be Henry. Now, the man is sick and asks, asks if Bert is... That's his cabin nearby. He tells him no and then attacks him, causing Henry to flee into the woods. Now, the group ends up going about partying, where... Later that night, Henry comes back, and they end up attacking him, trying to get him to leave. But before he does, he ends up vomiting blood all over their vehicle. They end up setting him on fire, and then he flees. And then we get to see that he ends up putting himself out inside of the reservoir that is the drinking water for the area. So as the people in his group start to catch whatever he had, they get infected. And then the fear of catching whatever it is leads to paranoia and spreading it even more. Now, as I said, the first time I saw this was in the theater. I thought it had an interesting concept, and it was loosely based on something that happened to co-writer, director of Roth. There are a few different types of flesh-eating bacteria and viruses out there, and it is something, you know, sorry about the pun, that gets under my skin. This is also an interesting movie to watch during a pandemic. What really makes this feel realistic is that we don't know what the parameters of the virus, and neither do the characters. I love seeing this fear set in and what it does to people. Paul's most level-headed, and he's looking at this rationally. We see, though, what happens to him when you push someone past their limits. Karen gets it first, and we see that the people, you know, get infected with things. She's treated like a leper. I can't completely fault them what they do to her due to fear. Bert isn't that far off of Paul, but he's just dumb. Marcy isn't all that bad either. The issue with her is that she's short-sighted and quite vain. Now, Jeff is someone who is overreacting, but again, they don't know how it spreads, and he's afraid. Then to look at the townspeople, I don't want to come off callous here and make fun of them, but I do have to point out that they're uneducated. Tommy blames someone for things that aren't hit their fault because he's from a small town. They're instigators for where the things end up, and then again, they're from a small town, so they're not looked at... As the villains, the outsiders are. We can really see that this in the country currently that I'm living in, of the United States, and how they decide to handle the problem is heartbreaking for sure, but they're also the reason that it spreads. Now, Jeff has the right idea to cover his you know, face until you know how it spreads. We're seeing COVID spread because people believe things that aren't true. The hospital in the small town isn't equipped to handle it, and so what they end up deciding to do is just to cover up and eliminate the problem. The government would be the police and the townspeople here. They're inept, and it leads to it actually spreading more. The virus in this movie is quite terrifying. Now, I do have to give credit here that Roth does some things where he's paying homage to things like deliverance, where we can't trust the country people. The ending felt quite reminiscent of Night of the Living Dead. They're playing a song or a cover of a song from The Last House on the Left. And you definitely get the Evil Dead vibe with how the cabin looks and you know them being out in the middle of nowhere. I do have to say that the humor in this movie doesn't necessarily work for me. It probably couldn't be made today with some of the dialogue. And I'm not proud to say this, but how they're talking is how I would back when this was made. It's very cringy now. And I also wish some of the comedic aspects were removed. It does take me out of the film sometimes where it just doesn't feel like it fits. But the acting was actually good. I think Strong is solid in portraying Paul. My only issue there is more with the writing, not really his performance. He is pervy at times, and it makes me dislike him for the things that he does. Lad is good at playing this first character of the group to get infected. I feel horrible for her since she is a good person, and she's quite attractive on top of that. DeBello just plays this idiot character well. He does have a few lines that make me laugh. And again with him, issues are with the writing, not with how he plays it. Vincent is quite attractive and plays this extremely vain character well. Kern plays the jerk to a T, in my opinion, and the rest of the cast, including cameos by Hal Courtney, Eli Roth, Giuseppe Andrews, and the rest of the cast really do round this out for what was needed. 
I was really glad to see that the effects were done by K&B. I didn't realize that they were the ones behind it. Everything looks to be done practical, and it's pretty gross. I like how realistically they make this flesh-eating aspects of the virus look. How Karen ends up is great. The blood in the movie looks good, and as is the gore. There is a scene with a harmonica that just felt like they wanted to throw that in there because they could do the effect, but it isn't logical. There's also a scene with a deer that doesn't look great either. Aside from that, I like what they do with filters and the cinematography. And the last thing to go over briefly here would be the soundtrack. I've already brought up that they use the song or a cover of it from Last House on the Left. It is the Bridge to Nowhere song. It is bleak in that movie and it's fitting here. Aside from that, I thought the score really kind of worked. I noticed it this time around and actually quite enjoyed it. So like I said, this is an interesting film to watch during a pandemic. Gives you kind of, you know, some perspective of the failed ways of handling a disease or a virus, you know, as we are here in America. If I do have any issues, it's with some of the dialogue and the comedic tones don't necessarily work. Regardless, though, I'm actually much higher than I was the last time I viewed this movie. And I can see why people were excited for Eli Roth to kick things off with this movie here. And I thought this was still good and came in with an 8 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Da willst du rein? Ja. In goldenen Handschuh? Ja. Da gehen auch normale Menschen rein. Soldaten Norbert, Tampon Günther, Cola Rumwaldraut, Nasen Ernie, Dornkat Max. Wie kommt man denn zu so einem Namen? Weil du nur morgens, mittags, abends Dornkat trinkst. Und heißt Max? Nee, Peter. Ich frag Peter, ob er noch so was trinken möchte. Nee, das ist mir zu hässlich. Und wer sind Sie? Herr Honker. Was stinkt denn da so? Hiermit erkläre ich, dass ich es im Leben noch nie so gut hatte wie bei Herrn Honker. Herr Honker weiß viel besser als ich selber, was gut für mich ist und deshalb erkläre ich ferner Herrn Honker, meine leiblich geborene Tochter Rosi zuzuführen, dass er sie vernaschen darf. Und? Hast du aber noch was auszusetzen? Junge, komm bald wieder, bald wieder. Es gibt genau drei Gründe, warum der Mensch trinkt. Erstens, um was Schlimmes zu vergessen. Zweitens, um was Schönes zu feiern. Und drittens, wenn man nichts los ist, dass was passiert. Schönen guten Abend, die Damen. Ich bin ein bisschen rau, aber stark. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Golden Glove. Now, this is technically a 2019 film, but it didn't get its re a wide release in the United States until 2020. And it goes by the original title of Dear Golden Hanshua. This is written and directed by Fatif Akin. And it comes from the novel written by Heinz Strunk. This stars Jonas Dassler, Margareti Teisel, and Adam Bosdokos. And then it also has Mark Hauschman, Katja Stutt, Tristan Gurbo, 
Martina Eitner Akamumpong, Mark Bone, Lawrence Walter, Victoria Troutsmansdorf, Heinz Struck, Greta Sophie Schmidt, Philip Baltos, Ui Rodi, and Jens Weiser. And if I got any of those names wrong, I do apologize. This is a crime drama horror film from Germany and France that is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a serial killer strikes fear in the hearts of residents of Hamburg during the early 1970s. Now this is a movie that I kept hearing people talk about watching for 2020. As I was saying, it's from Germany and France, and it did get a theatrical release in New York and L.A., but it didn't get a wide release in the United States until January of this year. Now, I've heard people, like I said, talking about its dark and depressing nature, and it seemed to fit what I was looking for when pairing this up for featured reviews on this episode here. Now, just a little bit more information about some of the major players here. The director of Akin is behind 20 projects this is the only one in horror as of right now the same can also be said for their work as a writer and then the writer of the novel this is the only project to be made into a film that is horror and he has nine titles aside from that dossler is pretty new to the acting game he does have six credits to his name and this is the only horror film that he's been in so far but i would actually like to see him do more to be honest Tysel has been in 54 projects. Her first in the genre would, of horror would be Attack of the Later Hosen Zombies from back in 2016. She was then in The Dark from 2018, and now this movie as well. And then there's Bos Dokos. They have been in 62 titles, but none of them in the horror genre, which is pretty impressive and a little bit depressing as well, aside from being in this movie here. Now we start this off seeing a wall with nude pictures of women, this is where we get to meet our main character of Fritz Hanka, who is Dossler, come in and attacks a body that is on his bed. He tries to drag it down the stairs, but the noise alerts one of his neighbors. From here, he has to take the body back up to his room because he has the attic apartment and then starts to remove parts of it. He throws them in a nearby like empty lot where we kind of look like there's some garbage that has been discarded there. Now, these pieces are discovered and this causes the newspaper to report on it. And it is through this that we learn we're in Hamburg back in 1970. And then the movie then shifts us up to 1974 where we're at a school where we have a young woman by the name of Petra Schultz who is portrayed by Greta Sophie Schmidt. She is told by her teacher that she isn't doing her work and will end up being held back. When she goes to leave, she notices that Vili, who is Tristan Gulbo, is using her pump for her bicycle tires. The two of them end up going to a local cafe where he buys her a Coke. Now, while he's inside, Fritz comes over to help her light a cigarette. She ends up leaving, though, after taking like a sip of her Coke and leaves the two of them there as she heads home. Now, Fritz starts to fantasize about her, and it is pretty creepy since, you know, she's still in high school. Now, I did end up looking it up. She is over the age of 18, but, you know, regardless here that in the movie, she's not that old. He does hang out at a bar called The Golden Glove, which is also the, you know, obviously the name of the movie. And then the German title, that's actually the real name of the bar. This is just the translation. Where inside they have these regulars with these different nicknames. Now Fritz tries to buy a bunch of women that are there a drink and they all turn it down. That is all of them aside from Gerda Voss, who is Teisel. Now, he ends up taking her home where he gets pretty violent. And it seems like because of his issues of impotency. When he cannot get himself erect, he elects to take a wooden spoon and use it on her. And then we end up seeing that after the effects of this is that she's just pretty, you know, beaten down and roughed up. But despite that, she ends up sticking around and ends up cleaning up the place. 
Fritz, before he left for work, he told her that she he wanted her gone by the time he got home, but when she's still there, he decides to keep her around because she's cooking and cleaning. He ends up also getting her to sign a contract that she will do whatever he says and really wants her to bring her daughter home to him so he can marry her. She even helps host his brother when he visits of Siggy, who is Mark Hausman, when he ends up stopping by. I don't think his brother or the people know the extent of the dark side of Fritz. Now, there is a smell coming from a cross space to the point where the Greeks that live below notice it, and they keep yelling at him to pretty much telling him that it's his he's the reason that it smells there but we know that fritz is a killer and he preys on those that lack confidence enough to come home with him and he ends up finding a lot of people that are alcoholics or overweight and you know he is being ignored and being rejected by everybody and i mean they're kind of a little bit worse off than he is so it's him trying to you know find people that he can kind of change their mind on and some of our kind of already touched on here is it all should be pointed out that fritz has a bad drinking problem himself now, this isn't an excuse for him to be doing what he is to these women. He tries to get sober for a stretch in this and takes on a new job, but it's while there he falls in love with a married woman of Helga Dennison, who is portrayed by Katya Stut, while working there, and this ends up, you know, with some disastrous results. Now, where I really want to start my analysis for this movie is that something I touched on in my introduction, you know, to the movie, and that is it's bleak. We're following a working class people here, and to be honest, most of them are alcoholics. And I think a lot of that is just we're seeing these regulars at the bar. It appears that they make enough money to drink and survive on, and the Golden Glove really just seems to have a tight-knit group of people, and they end up bullying people when outsiders come in, and we get to see this when Vili shows up later in the movie. Now, there isn't much to life for Fritz. I saw some trivia stating that he was sexually abused as a child. I haven't pointed it out yet, but this is also based on a real person, and that person is... I mean, they have a safe name of... Fritz Hanka. Now it's loosely based on the true crimes that were committed by this serial killer. So there is some truth to this, but some of this is obviously dramatized for the movie. But there was a scene shot in this movie, according to some trivia that I found, about his childhood that he was raped. But in the editing, the director and writer of Akin found them to be disturbing because it was a stupid explanation, saying that just because you were raped as a kid doesn't give you the permission to be a serial killer. Lots of people have been raped as children, and not everyone turns into a serial killer, and it would be a slap in the face for them. And that does make a whole lot of sense there. I've also, you know, kind of stated in this that this was based off of a novel written by Shrunk, and this attack, though, would explain some of the sexual issues that he's experiencing as an adult, especially why he, you know, is impotent and, you know, why he gets so violent about it. Now, there's a woman later in the movie that laughs at him for his issues, which doesn't help. He's a sad character, though, even if they're trying not to make him out to be. It makes me feel bad to say, but I do find sometimes feeling sorry for him. I think that this is a great thing that the filmmaker, you know, can do, even if they don't necessarily want you to feel that way. We see him as a monster that he is, but he really is just someone who wants somebody to love him. Now, he has his fantasies for Petra and wants Helga. He's stunted with issues from childhood to do the things that you're supposed to properly, which I think is an interesting commentary of how boys are raised at times as well. Because, I mean, we're seeing a lot of stuff, especially in the United States where I live, where we're blaming women for a lot of things. And I don't necessarily do it, but there is a lot of talk about that. And you see it a lot with especially people that are in the government when they're more right-leaning as well. And I think this is something that we should stop you know, blaming the women and actually blame the people doing the attacks. It doesn't help Fritz how he looks either, though. 
He has a lazy eye that appears to go away when he's wearing his glasses. He also has a nose that is misshapen and it looks to be like it has been broken a few times. It is wild to see a normal picture of Dossler because he's got a pretty good looking guy and that makes the makeup that is done to make him look as odd as he is and I have to give credit to the crew and the job that they do with that for sure. Now what is interesting though is how this story progresses. It is interesting that we see him starting with the disposal of a body so we're establishing from the beginning that he's a monster. From there we get to learn more about him including the issues that he has with women and how he treats them i feel this is interesting though to you know humanize him through siggy visiting and his attempt to turn his life around before his final downfall there is an interesting interaction he keeps having with the greeks below and how that plays into the ending as well to his you know discovery now i will shift this over to the effects here they were done practically which is good they don't use a lot of them though there is some viciousness that we know is going on but we really don't get to see it we're hearing it and we can kind of see how it is blocked by things but they didn't stop me from cringing the blood that we see looks realistic and i think that after effects of wounds are well done most of what we really get here is psychologically damaging though the beatings are done physically but we see the effects that they have on the mind of that person who has been attacked and that is what is powerful here so I also have to give credit to the cinematography as well to kind of be able to hide some of these things while making it, you know, not feel any less brutal. I should take this next as well to the acting. I've already said that I thought Dossler does an amazing job at bringing this character to life. And I'm not going too much into what I've already have, but I think we have a perfect combination of writing performance to make Fritz the tragic monster that he is. Tiesel and all the women that he brings home here are great as well. I can just feel the depression on them and it really does feel like these people are similar to Fritz in their loneliness and despite the fear of a killer you know, out there. They just want someone to be intimate with them and I like that Stute in what she brings you know, to the character of Helga. The same can also be said for Schmidt for Petra and then the rest of the acting in general is well done. Now before I close this out, I do have a little bit more trivia. Um, like I was saying that this is based on the, same, the novel of the same title written by Strunk and published in 2016. A female psychologist was brought in to help the actors deal with the rape scenes, which does make a lot of sense. And then around the 1450 mark in the movie, Strunk, the author of the novel, can be seen sitting at the bar. So that's all I really wanted to kind of delve into for this review. I really ended up enjoying this movie, and it isn't one of those like feel-good movies, and it really does have a dark look at life. There's an interesting setup to this movie as we learn more about Fritz, where we can see how horrible he is before he gets humanized and fully becomes the monster that he ends up being. I think the acting from Dossler and those around him really helped bring this to life. The effects are brutal in a subdued way and well done. I even like the sound design is used there as well. I can't re recommend this to everyone though. You have to like bleak serial killer movies and also be warned this is in German so I had to watch it with subtitles. If you can get past that and enjoy a movie like this, I'd say this is a good movie just borderline on great. And so my rating here is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review which is going to be an Italian horror film.
for my second feature review, I decided to watch Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom from 1975. The original title is Salo Oli 120 Giorni di Somaria. This is written by as well as directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini. And then he had screenplay collaboration from Sergio Citi. And then there was additional script work done by Pupi Avanti that was uncredited. And then this is also being uncredited being an adaptation of the Marquis de Sade's novel. This movie stars Paolo Bonicelli, Giorgio Cataldi, and Umberto Paolo Quintavalli. And then also appearing in this is Aldo Valetti, Caterina Boroto, Elsa Di Giorgi, Haleni Sergi, Sonia Sevignon, Sergio Faschetti, Bruno Musso, Antonio Orlando, Claudio Cicchetti, Marco Murley, Umberto Cesari, and Alberto Buc. Now, if I said any of those names wrong, I do apologize as I tried my best on that. But this is a drama horror war movie from a co-production of Italy and France. This is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, in World War II Italy, four fascist libertines round up nine adolescent boys and girls and subject them to 120 days of physical, mental, and sexual torture. Now, this is a movie that I didn't hear about until I got into listening to podcasts. It was one that I added to my list of films to see, but I wasn't necessarily rushing to, you know, check it out. What is interesting that is I decided to move this up due to November being dubbed Italian Horror Month, as I've said, thanks to the 22 shots of moods and horror. And since this is also where I started it off, you know, doing this podcast one year ago, I decided to go down the list of Italian horror films in Letterboxd, and this was the top-rated one that I hadn't seen yet, so I decided to do it for a review here on, you know, Journey with a Cinephile. Now, just to get into some of the major players before I move to my recap, the co-writer-director of Pasolini has writing credits of 63 works and directing credits of 28. This is the only one that falls into the genre. I did want to pass along that he did tragically be murdered around the time that this was coming out. It seems like he was going to do possibly more in the genre, so it is a shame that he was taken when he was. And even if he didn't do anything in the horror genre, that's still, you know, sad. His collaborator of CT has less credits in writing at 18, but this is the only one in genre. Now, the uncredited help from Avanti. I have seen one of his films recently, The House with Laughing Windows. Now, he has 61 writing credits, 13 of them are in horror. I haven't seen any of his others, and mostly it looks like to be in his native Italy with things like Zeter or Revenge of the Dead and Macabre. This is also, as I said, based off the novel by De Sade. Now, six titles have been adapted from his work into the genre, as he did live from 1740 to 1814. Bonicelli has appeared in 122 works as an actor. Only three are in genre, and I have seen one of his other works, as he was in Dario Argento's The Stendhold Syndrome as Dr. Cavana. The other one that I haven't seen, and that was Il Cavalleri, La Morte e la Divalo from 1983. And then Catalali is quite the opposite he has two things that he acted in we in this movie and then the best from the following year which is a comedy and then much like him we have quinta valle who is only in this movie here now we start this off seeing that we're in the town of salo 
in a room, four men make a pack and sign it into an existence. The four are interesting is that they represent the major parts of Italian culture at the time. We have royalty in the Duke, who is Bonicelli. We have religion with the Bishop, who is Cataldi. The courts with the Magistrate, who is Quintavale. And then government with the President, who is Valetti. I'm not entirely sure what he's the president of, but they are all fascists. And then the movie informs us that we're in 1944 to 1945 in Italy. And then the synopsis also does give that part as well. Now, in order to ensure that these men do not turn on each other, they all have a daughter and these men marry their daughter off to one of the others in this group. They then enlist the aid of Signora Castali, who is Borato, Mangi, who is Giorgi, and Vacari, who is portrayed by Sergiri along with soldiers to round up 19 males and 19 females. Of the males, there is Carlo Porro, who is Bruno Musso, Toino, who is Orlando, Lamberto Gobi, who is Buc, and then we have Reno, who is Gaspari Di Gino, and the rest are unnamed characters, but they're portrayed by Sergio Facetti, Claudio Cicchetti, Franco Merli, and Umberto Cesari. One of them ends up getting killed as he tries to escape on their way to the villa where they're going to be kept. Of the teen females, there is Fatima, who is Farde Malik, Doris, who is Dorit Heinke, Eva, who is Olga Andrazi, and then the other ones that aren't to name are Juliana Malice, Grisella Anchito, Renata Moore, Antoneski Numor, and Benedetta Gitani. Now, both sexes are stripped nude and being examined to be as close to perfection as they can get. And then, once again, I also want to say any of the names that I mispronounced there, I once again apologize. Now, when they arrive at this villa, they're told there is no God. There is punishment to those that pray or call out to him. They will meet in the orgy room where they will be told to do sex acts. And if they do not obey, they can also result in punishment. They have no rights here. And they're this group's playthings. The senoras are there to tell stories of their past, and these men act out their fantasies of sexuality and depravity on them. Now, that's where I just want to leave my recap of this movie, because there's really not a whole lot to it. It's really more seeing the effects of everything that is happening on these characters. And I'm going to make a bold statement here to start the next part here. This movie wasn't as bad as I was expecting. This tends to happen to me when I'm going to more of these extreme films. I brace myself, and then I end up realizing that although what I'm seeing is horrible, my expectations were much worse. What I want to reiterate here, though, is that the things that are being done to these victims is horrific. That is what really makes this a horror film. I mean, it starts with the selection process as both boys and girls are stripped down for inspection. And I do want to, you know, kind of make an emphasis here. These are boys and girls. The actors that are portraying them are over the age, I'm assuming, but the characters are under the age of 18. Things progressively get worse as they endure the six sick pleasures of these men something else to preface here is i don't like to kink shame but in this case these are unwilling participants what give me what gave me solace here is that what i did end up reading is on set it wasn't that bad the actors were treated well and made to feel comfortable and this seems to be coming from suguri as despite the grim subject throughout the film in an interview on the second disc of this criterion collection box set this actress claimed that the mood was actually rather jovial on set and that none of the teenage actors were actually harmed or traumatized. She said that the abundance of teenagers who had never acted before led the mood to be happy and at times even fun, with the cast often you know, playing practical jokes on each other. She also said that the movie was literally made in the editing room and the filmmakers had no idea how grim a movie it was until they saw the finished product at the premiere, which that makes me feel better about everything, you know, hearing that being coming from her. Now, I mean... 
I didn't see anything where anybody refuted what she said, but that is just something that I wanted to kind of point out here. And then to start to delve more into this story here is that it's divided into four chapters. It starts with Ante Inferno or Antechamber of Hell. It then goes to the Circle of Obsessions, Circle of Shit, and Circle of Blood. These are representing Dante Allegari's structure of Hell in Inferno. These chapters all make sense of the story as well. We have the introduction to get us to the villa. Obsessions plays out with, you know, being what the Duke, the Bishop, the Magistrate, and the President are all interested in and, you know, kind of their kinks. Gets progressively worse with what they're forcing their victims to do as they go full out into torture and end up killing some of them. There are some that also just die along the way for what they're doing as well, you know, on top of everything. Now, I know a lot of people ask why this movie was made, and I have to disagree. I think there's some merit to what they're trying to get at here. What I find interesting about this is that it wasn't until I actually, you know, sat down to watch this and started looking into it. I knew what the title was, so I figured it would be, you know, Obscure Sex Acts. I didn't realize that Salo was the name of the city that Benito Mussolini's fascist government made their capital from 1943 until they fell. It is relevant to the co-writer-director of Pasolini because his brother was killed there. It is also a reminder of the horrors that this regime had been doing as well. What is interesting to read is that I know where there's a scene where someone is forced to eat something disgusting. It is supposed to be a metaphor for consumer capitalism, which I can see after I read about it, as well as the rise of the junk food culture, which also makes sense. I'll admit, though, while watching this, that was lost on me. What I did get is seeing the names of those who, you know, set this up. We have all the major parts in charge of buying into whatever they want due to the government be being in charge and allow them to enact their wildest fantasies. This is kind of like something you would see with, like, the fall of Rome or something like that, is that corruption is run so deep and that those in power you're siding with, so they kind of just ignore what you're doing. But this movie wouldn't work as well, though, without the acting. I thought that Bonicelli, Calaldi, and Quintavalli, as well as Valetti, are all deplorable. Their performances are great for me in that, though. They feel like these horrible characters. They legitimately, as I said, feel like them. It is sickening, though, to see what they can happen with too much power is afforded to people that probably shouldn't have it. This stuff could be going on, but I highly doubt it would be in this day and age. Now, I know some people think it is with this whole, like, Pizzagate stuff that's going on, but I honestly don't believe they could get away with it. It's just interesting, though, that I think at some point in history where you could, you don't have necessarily a 24-hour news cycle, or you don't really have, like, the internet and social media, and I think that in the past, like, for sure, Borato, Giorgio, and Sagari are also interesting. They're prostitutes, so they're here, you know, to give ideas and train these children to pleasure as they were. And they're also the ones that help pick them out. It is sickening, but they're also nice to them, so there's this weird duality there. It is sad to see this play out. The victims all do a great job in their roles. It is one of those things that seeing the torture they go through, the effects it has on them is believable because that's really what the more horrific parts of this movie are. That's not to say some of the things we see aren't also horrific, but for me, it's really just seeing the effects as these poor teens are being broken down by what they're forced to do. There's also interesting commentary about them defying the system, which I think is really kind of an allegory for World War II because you would have people, you know, in like France that were working with the resistance and things of that nature. And we're seeing this play out here inside this villa on a much smaller scale. Because, I mean, in the end, they know what the end result's going to be. So, you know, you might as well enjoy what pleasures you can before your world comes to an end. Now, the last thing I kind of want to combine here would be the effects on the soundtrack. They don't really do a whole lot with either of them, if I'm going to be honest. Everything we get with the former is done practically. 
I have to give credit here that the framing makes things feel more realistic. I mean, we get a moment where, like, somebody's getting, like, urinated on. I like how they kind of frame that, where you could clearly see that it could be somebody, you know, spraying a water bottle in their face or something along those lines. There are some gross things with excrement in this movie. What I found interesting is that this is done with chocolate, orange marmalade, and some other clashing ingredients. So some of the reactions that you're getting from that are realistic, which I think actually works in its favor. It doesn't sound all that disgusting, but it is, you know, given enough for, like I said, the real reactions. A lot of what we get in this movie is just degrading to the victims. I have given a lot of credit to the cinematography here as well. What really also helps is, you know, with that as an, almost, as an art house vibe. The last thing would be the soundtrack. I was shocked to see Ennio Morricone's name. This is quite subdued with a jazz soundtrack, but I think that works in its favor. With what we're seeing on the screen, I don't want that to take over. So then before I go ahead and close this out, I do have a little bit more trivia that I wanted to drop here. Is Pasolini was murdered before the film's released. A 17-year-old hustler of Giuseppe Pino Pelosi was arrested when he found, you know, it was in Pasolini's car. He admitted to running over Pasolini several times after an argument and ended up being convicted of the crime. Years later, he denied actually participating in it, claiming that three mysterious men were involved. So the case remains unsolved, and that's kind of sad to even hear that, that it's still an open case. When this movie premiered in West Germany in February 1976, it was confiscated by the state attorney in order to ban it. The district court of Stuttgart classified it as pornographic and violence praising. A few days later, this ruling was reversed, and the film was allowed to be distributed nationwide. Roger Ebert owned this on Laserdisc for years after its release, but never watched it because he was intimidated by the graphic content. He supposedly died never watching it. Morricone composed the jazzy soundtrack, which he said was very uncomfortable watching the movie. He only agreed to, you know, do it because he's friends with Pasolini. Unsure of what to bring the film to a proper conclusion, four different endings were shot. This is one of the favorite films of director Michael Haneke and Gaspar Noé. John Waters is also a fan, and I can honestly, you know, see that because of some of the films they make and the bleak outlook. Even some 40 years after its release, this film remains banned in some countries. An attempt by Sky TV to televise the full uncut version in 1991 was vetoed by the BBFC. It has only become the only film to be rejected for TV screening amongst the works submitted by Sky. The British Board of Film Classification rejected this in 1975, making it illegal to show in the UK. When an art house cinema showed it in London, the film was confiscated in a police raid. In 2000, the BBFC revised its opinion, giving it an 18 for adults only. This film got an extremely limited release worldwide, but it was banned in many countries. It got a wide release in Sweden in 76 and sold 125,000 tickets, meaning that 1.5% of the Swedes saw the movie. It also grossed more than The Omen. This is the first part of what was going to be a trilogy of death for the director. The subsequent two parts were never filmed because of his murder a few months after he had finished this movie. The trilogy was intended to be a complement to his previous trilogy of life, which was The Demaracon from 71, The Cadbury Tales from 72, and Arabian Nights from 74. The story is divided into, like I said, four chapters, and then there's, you know, the Anti-Inferno, and then the three Jirani, which is Hell's Circles. When the director was asked who's the film's audience, he says it's for everyone, for people like him. The notorious scene where the young woman is forced to eat excrement was intended to be a metaphor, as I said. In 94, an undercover police officer in Cincinnati, Ohio, rented the film from a local gay bookstore. He then later arrested the owners for pandering. A large group of scholars and artists, including Scorsese and Alec Baldwin, signed a legal briefing arguing the film's artistic merits. The court dismissed the case because the police violated the owner's Fourth Amendment rights without addressing the question of whether the film is obscene. 
The film only earned proper censorship approval from the Australian authorities in 2010. Several books are quoted throughout the movie, including Frederick Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morality from 1887, Ezra Pound's Cantos from 22 to 62, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, 1913 to 1927, and a poem by Gottfried Bing. There were some issues with a dispute with Pasolini's estate and this movie being released by the Criterion Collection. This is one of the top favorite films of director Rainer Werner Fassbender. There's a song sung at a meal here that is Sol Ponte di Pierti, On the Bridge of Pierti. This is an Italian Second World War song based on a First World War song. It commemorates a battle between the 3rd Alpani Division of Julia of Italy's Alpine Mountain Infantry Corps, and it commemorates the major battle that was between Greece and Albanian soldiers involving as well as you know Italian troops as well. This film played a football match against 1900 crew, which was directed by Pasolini's friends and disciple Bernardo Bertolucci. This is included in the 1001 movies you need to see before you die. This book that it was based on did not get its published until 1905, even though the writer wrote it back in 1785. It's one of David Cross's favorite films. And I think that's all the trivia that I want to go ahead and give here. So to close this out, this is an interesting movie. Banning this without watching it or ignoring the merit is trying to convey is really doing this a disservice. It Can it be difficult to watch? Absolutely. But I've been thinking that this is for more hardcore fans who can get past that and those that like to see social commentary. There are some really interesting aspects that they're going into here. The backdrop of the war coming to an end makes sense. It feels like it's had Rome before it fell where the tastes of those in charge have turned into depravity. They're acting out their wildest fantasies on those that don't have a choice. I think the acting helps bring this to life. The effects are harsh, but subdued enough to believe it. Do I think this is a masterpiece? No, I don't. There are some things that can be taken from it for sure, though. It does run a bit long, so keep that in mind. I really can't recommend it to most people, but you have to you know, be prepared for what you see in this one for sure. I would say to avoid this if you don't like more artistic films. Overall, I would say that this is a good movie for what it's trying to do and came in with an 8 out of 10 here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me as I welcome you back here one last time. Now, just to close out this episode here, if you'd like to send me an email, you can send that to me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, you can do that at Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you'd like to follow all the reviews on Letterboxd, that's David OSU. And I will have all of those links in the show notes as well to make it easier for you. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow me on the Journey with the Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile. And then the last thing I'll ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to this on, if you could go ahead and subscribe as well as rate and review, just so that way I get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can make this the best show possible. Now for the next episode, we're going to continue on with Italian Horror Month as I'm actually going to watch one that I have not seen since I was a child. And I, outside of, I think I've seen clips of it when I was living at my parents' house as they had you know, the movie channels and this would periodically come up on. I've watched the documentary about it last year, but I'm going to watch Troll 2 because I, have, like I said, have not seen that since I like all the way through since I was a child, so I'm going to do a review there. It is one, like I said, I have seen, but it has been so long that I'm still going to do a featured review on it. And then I'm not really sure what I'm going to do as the other featured review. I was trying to find a creature feature that I could kind of sync up with it. But there are some films at the Gateway Film Center that I do want to check out. I don't know if I'm going to have time as it's kind of a busy weekend with Jamie's parents are being in town and we have some renovations we're doing around the place that we are living. So I will see what I'm going to do there. I will end up getting, you know a 2020 release though to get paired up with this for so don't worry about that there but that's all i really wanted to delve into here before i you know ended everything so what i want to go ahead and do is say that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it we're going through some little bit turbulent times here but hopefully there are some good things on the horizon so this is your tour guide david garrett jr signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending 